I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent. Down the line from Germany, we also have a guest, Sasha Steffen, who is professor at the University of Mannheim. We also have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, giving us a report stateside. This week, we will be looking at the latest news from the Bank of England as it goes all fintech on the world. Secondly, a look at a study from the University of Mannheim about bankers' personalities and how they matter far more than bankers' bonuses. And finally, a look at the US Fed stress tests. First, though, Caroline, you've been looking at a speech that Mark Carney didn't give, actually, the other day, but released about financial technology. Tell us why he didn't give it and also what it was about. That's right. So Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, was due to give the speech at the Mansion House dinner in front of City of London grandees last Thursday evening. But unfortunately, the fatal shooting of Joe Cox MP meant that he and the Chancellor, George Osborne, decided to postpone the speeches that they were going to be making. In any case, Mr. Carney released the speech at the end of last week on Friday. And in it, there's sort of sweeping changes that he would like to see at the Bank of England, all of a fintech nature. I think the top line really was that non-bank providers of payment services, which are basically companies like Apple Pay, PayPal, etc., they're going to be getting access directly to central bank cash. At the moment, there are only four traditional lenders, really, that have clearing accounts with the Bank of England's real-time gross settlement services, RTGS, and that's the banking payment system. So at the moment, if you're one of these payment service providers, you've got to go through one of these four banks. And obviously, in these days of challenger banks, what the payment service providers are arguing is that these four clearing banks are actually right. So it's one level of competition that's being stripped out. So they're all very happy about that. Beyond that, the Bank of England has said that it is working to see whether a cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin might be able to be developed for the UK. I think Carney has cautioned that that's going to be some time off yet. But they are looking at the technology that underpins Bitcoin, the blockchain distributed ledger technology, to see if that actually might be of some use in making RTGS more resilient. And you'll remember that the Bank of England suffered a rather embarrassing outage a couple of years ago in the RTGS system. Now, of course, blockchain is something that we've heard praised within the Bank of England before. Andy Haldane, the current chief economist of the bank, has been a big advocate of innovation in that area. He has, and Andy has forecast the death of cash, as it were. Mr Carney made a little bit of an oblique swipe, I think, in that speech, if I'm reading it correctly, in that he said that while cash may no longer be king, its reign is surely going to go on for some time yet. 
<laughs> well, let's look at another dimension of the whole fintech story. There's always great developments going on, but one of them this week is that the Financial Times is launching its own fintech prize, which Martin can tell us all about. So this week we have launched the FT Future of Fintech Awards, which are designed to recognise financial technology companies and projects with the ability to bring lasting change to the financial services industry. People may say this is a bit of a weird time for the FT to launch these awards because some of the heat is coming out of the fintech space and some of the sceptics are starting to say that the bubble is bursting with things like the crisis at Lending Club, the big US peer-to-peer or marketplace lender. But we say no, we think that there's much more substance than hype to a lot of the innovation that's going on at the moment in financial services and that in the medium term, this is going to be one of the biggest upheavals in financial services that we've seen for a generation. So we're now inviting nominations for the awards from companies themselves, but also from elsewhere, including from FT journalists. People can download an application form on the page for the awards, which is uh, www.ft.com fintech. And we'll be giving two prizes. One of them is a innovation prize for younger startups. And another is impact for larger, more established fintechs. And we've already named a panel of judges, including Patrick and myself, but also several top names, including Anshu Jain, the former Deutsche Bank chief executive. And we plan to decide the two winners and to name them at the FT Banking Summit in November. So please do go to ft.com slash fintech to take a look. Yeah, and to make your nominations. Also, I should say that at ft.com slash fintech email, you can read Martin's new weekly email service on fintech news, which this week is on Mark Carney's speech on fintech, which Caroline's just been talking about. So on to our second item for the day and a look at why bankers' personalities perhaps matter more than bankers' bonuses. Laura, you wrote this story up for Monday's FT. Tell us a bit about the background to it. So what we did was we looked at a piece of research. It's the first research of its kind that really tried to quantify how bank executives impact the performance and the risk-taking of their bank. The general theory is that bank executives have been incentivized by their bonuses and by their pay. And the idea behind a lot of the regulators' response to the crisis has been that if you change the bonus and the pay structures, then you'll see bankers taking fewer risks. And if you have a more long-term incentive plan, then you'll have bankers taking decisions which are in the long-term interest of their institution rather than taking these big risks which can pay off in the short term. Now, what these researchers found was that when they looked at what happened to banks across a period of around 20 years, they found that pay didn't actually have that much impact on the way bankers assess risk. What the researchers did was they looked at the different decisions taken by banks in similar situations and they first of all tried to work out how much of an impact did the bank senior managers have on those decisions. And then once they looked at that, they then tried to work out a correlation between different type of bankers and different decisions that their banks took. And what they found was that they could explain more of the bank's decisions by looking at the personalities and by looking at the kind of X factor of the individual bankers than by looking at the commonality of the bonuses and the compensation structures and the other observable things, stuff like education, background, whether they've worked in the bank or outside of the bank. Actually, all of that contributed less to the bank's risk appetite 
than the overall character of the bankers involved. Their basic conclusion was that if regulators have been going about trying to solve the risk issues by trying to incentivise bankers to a more long-term incentive scheme or by trying to give them smaller bonuses, that that's actually answering the wrong question because what actually affects the risk culture is the character and the calibre of the bankers at the very, very top. That is a much tougher thing for the regulators to address. Regulators have done a little bit of work in this area. They have the fitness tests for bankers in some countries where you have to undergo interviews, but really very, very few people actually fail them. So if you are totally unfit to run a bank, then you will not be allowed to run a bank. But it's not the same as trying to work out what is the best type of person to have running the bank and how do we get those type of people into those jobs. And the authors of the paper do admit that is a very difficult thing for the regulators to actually do. And they say that because the banker's character has such a big impact, and because it's so hard for regulators to really tackle that, then that is a significant source of systemic risk as well, because it's an issue that the regulators can't really get their arms around. We're also joined by Sasha Steffen, one of the authors of this report from the University of Mannheim. Sasha, thanks very much for coming on the show. Tell us, first of all, what prompted you to look at this topic? Because obviously it's very much been in the news post-crisis that bonuses drove excessive behaviour, but you presumably had a niggle that made you think about other drivers? Actually, to be honest, when we started that paper, we didn't have anything on executive compensation in mind. So what we actually were motivated by is that there is some literature saying that basically events or effects during crisis are very similar and hasn't been different in the 2008-2009 crisis compared to previous crises. And we were more interested in what kind of determines that persistence in risk culture within banks that ultimately leads to that bad performance. And our hypothesis was that this has to be coming from the top executives in that bank with imprint that risk culture within the firm. And tell us a little bit about how deep you went inside individual institutions. Did you look, for example, at the personality at the helm of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and other institutions that collapsed in the crisis? We did this. We actually looked at 1,500 executives and more than 100 banks at the beginning and tried to investigate using 10 or more at the beginning different policy choices of banks. So, for example, how much do they rely on short-term holiday funding or how much do they actually do in more traditional banking models like loan and deposits taking and try to isolate a specific effect which is coming from the top management of the firm. So this is how we started. And we were actually able to identify these managerial effects. This is how we call that. And in a second step, basically related that to crisis performance. So we estimated this actually pre-crisis until the end of 2006, and looked at how does this predict how the banks performed during the crisis and could actually see that this actually has a really large impact. So those managers which were more inclined to have large exposures to mortgages and mortgage-backed securities and to short-term wholesale funding performed far worse compared to those which were more diversified in the lending business or had more traditional deposit funding. This is something you would expect, but now we could actually see that this is actually coming from what the bank executives made firms or made the, the employees do. And how could you be sure that bonuses, either for the chief executives or for the next people in the chain, were not responsible for motivating that risk-taking? 
We could actually control for that in our empirical methodology. So what we did is basically looking at these different bank business policy choices and investigated as to how much they were driven by bonuses, by also this option character in bonuses, higher risk and potentially higher profits than also give higher profits for the executive. So we could actually isolate this and say, okay, this might have an impact, but explains only like 4% of the overall differences in policy choices between banks. And then we were able to isolate this bank executive specific effect or managerial effect and could see that, okay, this explains a lot of that, actually, a lot of this variation between banks. So I guess as a final point, regulators maybe have been off beam, really, in looking to change the way that they regulate for bonuses and and so on. I think this is right. I think this discussion, also we had this discussion in Germany substantially about how much do banks or bankers actually get paid. And I think this went completely off topic But really, no one actually looked at what the impact on risk actually might be. And we are saying this, okay, regulation of bonuses does not go to the root of the problem, doesn't really impact how managers actually run their banks. But regulators have to look more at the specific managers and the actions themselves. That's a trickier job for regulators, but it sounds like all the more worthwhile. Let's go to our third item. Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Alistair Gray, his colleague there, about the upcoming Federal Reserve stress tests, interestingly timed for Thursday, the same day as our Brexit referendum in the UK. The Fed has put the balance sheets of 33 banks through simulated meltdowns in financial markets and the economy, and the results tell us how well they would cope. So Ben, what does this exercise tell us about the state of the banking industry? Well, in theory, they're designed to be a health check, essentially. Since the crisis, authorities have unveiled a succession of measures designed to encourage the banks to hold more capital, to hold more liquid assets and so on, and subject them to all these new laws arising from Dodd-Frank. But this is the one chance every year that the Fed really gets the chance to run the rule over the big banks and to impose on them this hypothetical scenario of extreme stress and to ask the crucial question, would they have enough capital to make it through that stress scenario? And how have the banks fared in previous years? Well, there's been a bit of a mixed record. There was a nice note from Mike Mayo at CLSA. Looking back over the past three years, one in seven banks has come a cropper in some way. The penalties range from the serious, for example, Citi, a couple of years ago, failed the whole thing. Last year, Bank of America had a less serious failure. The Fed gave it six months to improve, essentially to strengthen its grip on its capital management processes. But banks have generally got better, certainly passing stage one, which is the quantity development which is saying, do you have enough capital? Uh, Stage two, the more serious one, that's the CCAR, the shorthand. That is, does the Fed believe you have enough of a strong grip in your capital management processes? And that was where uh, B of A came unstuck last year. And this year, what are the big questions? Are there any concerns about any particular institutions? Well, I think every institution goes into it fearing the worst. I think that's, that's part of the design of it, is to make every bank think that, hold on, although we are very confident and we, we, we think we're, we're stuffed to the gills with capital, do we actually have the wherewithal to see it through a really stressful scenario? And the Fed has cranked up the dials this year. The unemployment is spiking again to 10%, but since the base is lower this year, that's more stressful. There's a bigger collapse in Europe modelled into the hypothetical scenarios. House prices are tumbling by 25%. Stocks will halve, essentially. 
commercial real estate, that'll drop by 30%. So with all this happening to all the assets on the balance sheet, do the banks have what it takes to get through that? And the Fed this year has told banks to model for the first time the impact of negative interest yep. rates, or at least negative short-term treasury yields. Could that throw a spanner in the works? I don't think so. I think some of the banks were taken aback by it at the outset, especially since uh, Janet Yellen, just a few doors down in that same buildings in Washington, was talking about uh, increasing interest rates. And so it was a bit of a mixed message. But it did cause some confusion, I think, on Treasury desks. Lots of contracts have to be essentially redrawn to take account of interest rates being negative. But no, no I think um, banks have you know thick buffers of net income. If there is a compression effect on the net interest margins as a result of short-term interest rates, that they're well able to withstand them. And what do we know, though, about how the Fed goes about reaching its decisions and its methodology? It's essentially a black box, and, and the banks, as I said, have got used to that. They know that the Fed is, is trying to keep them all on their toes, uh, make this process unguessable. Uh, of course, the scenario for, for the, um, the the first part, uh, the defaster Dodd-Frank Act stress test, uh, that's all spelt out pretty clearly. But, but the second part, the CCAR, which is where the judgment comes in from the Fed, There's really no way of knowing whether you've done enough, whether the Fed is going to be satisfied that it's seen enough progress from point A to point B. That was the problem with Deutsche Bank last year. It was the problem with Santander last year. The Fed judged that um, despite some efforts, lots of hiring of CCAR experts and so on, there wasn't enough evidence, uh, the Fed found, uh, that the bank had taken this seriously enough. And so the results of CCAR, that's the... That's the second round of this is out next week. Uh, and that'll tell us whether the banks are able to increase payouts yep. to shareholders. And are you expecting big increases in dividends and share buybacks if, um, if banks are allowed to? Well, this is year six uh, of, of CCAR. And uh, every year since the, the start, we've had increasing dividends and buybacks. In the first year, 2011, the big four, that's Wells Fargo, Citigroup, JP Morgan and Bank of America, between them returned $18 billion in dividends and buybacks. And that was 38% of net income. Last year, 2015, there was $41 billion, So we're, we're more than double. And that's 54% of earnings. So the trend is unequivocally up. This year, um, well, the 2016 CCAR, according to those CLSA estimates I mentioned before, $51 billion. So again, we're increasing. And that, that'll be 65% of net income. So the banks can go into this thinking that, yes, they, they, they can start to brief investors that uh, if all goes well, because the, the base keeps getting higher, the capital ratio keeps climbing, that they can see, that the investors can see more of their profits. Very good, Ben. Well, um, thanks very much. Thank you. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline and Laura here in the studio. Also, Ben and Alistair in New York and Sasha Steffen from the University of Mannheim, our guest. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.